Hey y'all, it's Bree here, and I am so excited for this episode. I'm accompanied by Cindy Scott, who is a registered dietitian and certified lactation counselor, to talk about responsive feeding starting from birth. In this episode, we're going to go over the benefits of breastfeeding for the mom and baby, hunger and satiety cues in infants, bottle feeding tips, starting solids tips, toddler picky eating tips, and promoting more positive mealtime experiences. By the end of the episode, you're going to be able to list infant hunger cues and describe developmental readiness signs for starting solids. Cindy is not just your average registered dietitian. She is a huge advocate for evidence-based practice, and if you follow her on Instagram at the baby dietitian, the dot baby dot dietitian, you will learn so much from the nutritional side of what infants and little ones need when starting solids and beyond. On top of that, if you follow me, then you know how much I care about the research. What does the evidence show us and how can we then use our clinical expertise to support families? Well, Cindy provides the references. She is all about finding out the research, debunking anything that is incorrect, and providing us with the best ways to support our children nutritionally. Cindy also... This episode was such a joy to record, and I have to say, this is the first episode I've ever recorded that did not require any edits. So... Enjoy today's episode on discussing responsive feeding from birth. Let's get started. Welcome to The Feeding Pod. I'm Brie, your co-host. I'm a speech-language pathologist and certified lactation counselor. I work with infants and medically complex patients with PFDs in the home and outpatient settings. I enjoy building relationships with families and I'm a firm believer in providing interdisciplinary care. I also love providing mentorship and support to upcoming and new clinicians on pediatric feeding disorders. You can find more about me on my Instagram at pediatric feeding SLP or on my website, pediatricslplibrary.com. And I'm Olivia, co-host, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified lactation counselor. I work in a pediatric clinic where I get to divide my time between working as a CLC and an RDN for infants and children. I enjoy being able to help caregivers navigate through these difficult times that include the newborn phases all the way through the teenage years. I feel that my personal experience from having a newborn who's now a toddler and a child with special needs, including a feeding disorder, really come into play. We are here to bring you multidisciplinary, evidence-based information that is easily accessible about pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. We understand firsthand the importance of collaboration and how difficult it can be to navigate the ever-changing information on assessment and treatment of pediatric feeding disorders. The Feeding Pod is here to provide research, support, and a dash of comic relief. Now, let's dive right in. Disclaimer, all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is intended to be educational in nature and does not replace the consultation, 
diagnosis, and or medical treatment from a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome back to The Feeding Pod. It's Brie here, and today I am joined by Cindy Scott, who is a dietitian and certified lactation counselor. And today we're going to be talking about um, starting solids and responsive feeding, starting from birth all the way through the ages. And we're going to harp on, you know, starting out with the breast and bottle, um, going into starting solids, and then how we can continue that through early childhood. So Cindy, I'm going to pass it to you to kind of give a quick introduction of your background and who you are. Yeah. Hi guys. It's really exciting to be here. I love Brie. I feel like she's one of my favorite other healthcare professionals. Um, so my name is Cindy. I am like Brie said, a pediatric dietitian and a lactation counselor, and I have my own private practice. Um, I really focus on helping moms in the newborn phase with any breastfeeding struggles. Um, I really love helping moms transition back to work and continue breastfeeding. And then I'm really passionate about starting solids. And then I even do a little bit of the picky eating um, once we hit that phase a little bit later. So I'm just really passionate about making sure children are nourished well and that moms are supported, whatever that may look like, whether it's formula or breastfeeding, or if we're starting solids or whatnot with allergies, I just want to make sure the mom's supported and has plenty of education and research-based guidance. Yeah, that is one reason that I love everything you put out, Cindy, because you back it with the research. Like anything you say is not going to just come directly from your opinion and experiences. You are going to back everything. And I super appreciate that about you. And uh, I'll make sure that in our show notes as well at the end of um, the episode, we, we mention where people can find you and follow you because you put out a lot of awesome information as an SLP. It's super helpful to know the nutrition side of stuff because not only does it help us a little bit know what's going on with the patient, but also when to refer and when we need to seek out services. So, um, super appreciate it. So let's kind of start with, um, breastfeeding. So in terms of breastfeeding, what are, you know, maybe some of the benefits of breastfeeding and then let's go into how can we be responsive when we are promoting breastfeeding and making sure that we're being responsive to the child's cues. Yeah. Well, I think we all know a lot of the benefits of breastfeeding are directly related to like gut health um, for the baby and just helping it mature and like sealing it with that good beneficial gut bacteria straight from the start. Um, You know, breastfeeding has been shown to lower the risk of ear infections, diarrhea, things of that nature as well. And it also has been shown like to help prevent against comorbidities later in life, like type two diabetes or heart disease and stuff. And this is all, you know, generalized. We can't really factor in other lifestyle factors, but um, breastfeeding just has, breast milk just has so many beneficial ingredients in it that we're still learning, you know, more and more about what is in it. You know, we can't really even replicate it great because we don't even know all the compounds and the beneficial ingredients in it yet. So it's just really fascinating. Um, And and I think, you know, changes and modifies for yes, the infant. exactly what they need that's where like we can't replicate that because it changes for what the child needs and I know like you know the research that shows like even a child who was born premature the milk is completely different than a child born for full term um just Absolutely. the composition of it is going to be different to support that growth level yeah. um, versus the child born full term so 
Yeah. And then also, you know, the benefits to mom, you know, moms have decreased risk of ovarian cancer, breast cancer, type two diabetes, all of those things. So it's not just like a, we're doing this for baby. I mean, you can be a little bit selfish if you want to, and be like, you know, this is beneficial for me because this is kind of what our bodies are designed to do when we have children. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think from the start too, just, you know, going into like there are infant benefits. There are benefits of the caregiver who's feeding. And then there's the dyad benefits and the bonding and the relationship and the relatedness that, um, you know, happens just through that. And something I think that naturally occurs with breastfeeding is a little bit more of responsive feeding, um, which we'll talk about bottle feeding because, you know, that it happens. It needs Mm -hmm. to happen. There are infants that need, um, formula for all kinds of different reasons. And so, we'll talk about that, but in terms of breastfeeding, what are some of the cues, um, that caregivers and, you know, as healthcare providers that we need to look for, um, to show that a child is hungry? Yeah, I think when they're newborns, it's, I feel like it's easier to find their cues of hunger because it's pretty much anything, um, you know, bringing their hand to their mouth, um, opening their mouth and rooting around, um, rooting on you, like pressing their head into your chest or rubbing on whoever they're holding on to. Um, Crying is obviously a very late sign of hunger. So, I mean, I think one book I read recently, textbook said that like pretty much any repeated motion that a newborn makes may indicate hunger just Mm -hmm. because for the first couple of weeks, they are very sleepy and tired. And so when they're hungry, it's, they're starting to move around and look for it, you know, and that's their sign that they, because that's what they do. They sleep and they eat really. Um, So the newborn phase, I mean, it's really easy to do responsive feeding if we're offering frequently. Mm-hmm. because we need eight to 12 feedings per 24 hours. And some research is showing we may even need 16 feedings in 24 hours in the first couple of weeks of life. Mm-hmm. So if we're just offering, I mean, that is pretty much offering all the time, you know? Okay. And I know for some moms, it can be really scary because they're like, well, why are they feeding so much? Does that mean they're not getting enough from me? And then we do transition into this wanting to pump and give a bottle instead so that we can see the amount of ounces they're getting, which mm-hmm. I totally understand like needing that um, reassurance that they're getting enough. But also I think it does take an element out of that trusting your yeah. baby's getting what they need from the source mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they like your infant is going to show you the cues of yeah. this is what I need. This is, you know, what's, what's enough for me. And I think knowing too, there's that range of potentially like eight to 16 yeah. feedings in 24 hours that shows like every infant's different and how much they tolerate, how frequently they tolerate, like it's going to, your milk composition is going to have a lot of impact on that. So if you have a milk composition that's lower in fat and protein, they're probably going to need to consume more frequently as compared to someone that has a high fat and protein content in their milk composition. And that's so individualized. So, yeah. yeah. And And then even like the no, even like the milk storage capacity. Do you know yep. what I mean? Like my milk storage capacity could be like, I can only hold five ounces in one breast at one time. And another mom could maybe hold eight ounces. Yes. So if I have a really um, efficient nurser, they have a really great latch and they can transfer the milk really well. Um, and they can chug down eight ounces. If I was that really big milk storage capacity, they could go potentially 
two or three hours between feedings and, and only need that eight feedings in a 24 hours um, compared to the mom that can't store as much. Right. And that's not necessarily a problem. That's just how our bodies are made. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, this is where for, for me, what I see a lot of times, and I know you would agree with this is a lot of, it's just the lack of education that these caregivers are given from the start in terms of like breastfeeding is not easy. It is really, really hard. And because it's so different, it's so different for every caregiver child diet. Like it will never be the same experience. And there's so many variables that go into play. And so I think it's hard to create that norm of what to expect. And so I mean, for me, I'm just like, when in doubt, refer out. So if a caregiver yep. is concerned about it, go see someone that can help you with it. Um, but that's really helpful. And I think knowing too, like with responsive feeding, which is what I want to make sure we really talk about, you know, through the age range is like, it starts from the beginning. It starts mm-hmm. from seeing those hunger cues and responding. Yep. We're not giving a pacifier and saying, no, we're only feeding at right. eight, 10 and 12 yep. because our we, like, I always say this, like we as adults, I mean, maybe some adults do this. I do not do this, but we do not eat the same amount at every meal all day long. We don't just eat, you know, three course meals three times a day. And that's it. We have snacks. Our hunger fluctuates. Our appetite fluctuates depending on what we're eating. Are we eating something really high calorie and high fat? And it keeps us really full for a long time. Um, are we eating something like really carb-based and we're hungry an hour later? Do you know what I mean? Like our milk composition is just like that. So I, it bothers me when we put our babies on this very strict feeding schedule and we only allow them to feed at this time because we're not doing that ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's just not how a human body works. Right. And that's what, as providers, we have to really emphasize that with caregivers, because while it can be scary to think that like, oh, wait, my, my child already knows how much they want or how much they don't want, but they do. And by us actually interfering with that is suppressing their cues and that is what's going to cause more problems down the line because they learn to just suppress hunger and even suppress satiety. Cause you can also have kiddos that are overfed. Um, and so it can happen both ways. And so it's like, it's really us that ends up getting in the way. If we try to say like, Oh, make sure you're going every so often and cut off a feed at this time and do, cause that's another big one is like, you know, if they're some infants, they feed five minutes on each breast and they're done. They're good to go. And some it's 20 minutes on one and five on the other, or they just decide to do 30 minutes on one breast right now. And like, it just, it can vary so much. Yeah. I think like, I always go back to our babies are intuitive eaters from the start. Like we don't have to teach them how to be that way, but unfortunately due to whatever happens throughout the lifespan, you know, maybe that is the mom really pushing them to eat more because she's concerned about them not getting enough or whether that's the mom really pushing them to space out the feeds. Um, We're doing it because we love and we care, but are we undermining their natural ability and then it leading into an adulthood, into an adult who is then having an issue with overeating because they were trained at a young age, maybe to eat when it was presented because they didn't know the next time they would receive that meal. Um, you know, cause they, they were depending on their mother or father or caregiver to tell them when they were hungry and when they were not hungry. So they lost the ability to do that themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's really important that we're fostering responsive feeding from the get-go because then it makes it easier to continue to foster it down the road. 
Yeah. Because it will naturally evolve. Just like you said, like we change how much we want to eat or don't want to eat based on what's going on. Like if I, you know, if you have a day that's super, super active, you might be hungry for breakfast as soon as you get up. But then there's other days where you ate dinner late. And so you wake up and you're not really hungry until later in the day. And like, we are able to control and follow our cues and nobody's telling us when we can or can't eat, yep. um, you know, within reason because work schedules. <laughs> yep. But I think that's where like starting that from the beginning is so important because it allows them as they also evolve and as they are moving more. And I think that's another thing, which we can talk about more when we get to the six um, month level, because I want to make sure we talk about satiety cues is that, you know, some infants, as they start moving more, they actually will feed more um, than they might have been. And we think that like, oh, they're at six months. They should only be eating a few times a day now and not overnight. And it's like, well, actually if they're going through a growth spurt, they might need more. Um, so, but, um, I digress from that. So with, um, breastfeeding, what are some of the cues at the breast that might signal, um, an infant is finished eating? I think the biggest cue is the child's not actively suckling anymore. Um, If they're more doing just like, um, not, I wouldn't call it lazy. I don't like that term lazy, but more like just um, a comfort nursing where you're not seeing, yes, the non-nutritive, you're not seeing gulping or anything like that anymore. Um, When they pull off on their own, that's a great sign that maybe they're done. If, you know, it's, been a decent amount of time and they seem content. Um, well, I mean, well, content is the biggest sign. If their hands are open and relaxed, if they're still really tight and clenched up and almost seem like just not relaxed, yeah. <laughs> that would be a sign that maybe they're not done eating. We really want them to be very calm. If they're falling asleep, that's a really great sign that they're, um, that they're full. I think one of the big things though, is like talking about all these signs of like hunger and fullness is if you are concerned that your child is not getting enough breast milk at the breast, never wait. Do you know what I mean? Like get support, Mm -hmm. just get a second set of eyes on them because, you know, while we say like falling asleep at the breast is a sign of a good feed or that they're full, that could also be a sign of like other things yeah. maybe going on too. We don't want the baby to be too sleepy where maybe they're getting really exhausted at the breast. And so they're falling asleep because they're tired and not because they're full. So anyways, that just goes to show like all of these are ideas and examples. Yeah. Um, but if you are concerned, always yep. get support. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Just like when in doubt, refer out, just get the yeah. referral, let somebody help you through that. Because like you even said with the hands, like sometimes the open spread hands and the arms out is a stress cue. And then, you know, for some infants, it's the fisted hands that are really tight. And for some, it's just like a lot of it is reading the child in Mm -hmm. the moment. And so, you know, there are are certain things we can look for that tell us like a definite, like they're done, but are they actually getting enough or are they not is, is a different story. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. So with responsive feedings, we talked about, it's a little bit trickier with the bottle. So it doesn't have to be, but I think mm-hmm. a lot of times because there are numbers involved, sometimes I wish I could just delete the numbers off the yeah. bottle. Like, could we just get rid of it? And I know we would still eyeball it, but like, it might help a little bit. Yeah. Um, but when we think about how can we be responsive with the bottle, what are some of maybe the things that you think about, um, or that you tell families to implement? I really like to think about it as we want to mimic, um, 
we want to mimic how a feeding would take place at the breast. Um, even if we're providing formula or um, formula mixed with breast milk, anything like that, we really want it to mimic the same type of feeding environment because that is how they're naturally designed to feed. So like when we're breastfeeding, our baby does take breaks and they pace themselves. And with a bottle, it may be harder to do that. Um, let's say the milk is flowing really easily and the bottle is held up a little bit higher so they're not having to do any work. Well, we really want them to be actively suckling on that bottle. We want them to pace themselves. We don't want them, it would just be like us you know, chugging a milkshake really quick. Our body's not going to be able to register that we're full. We're going to probably still think that we're, we could eat more. And so that's what we run into a lot with the bottle feeding is kind of just, it's so much easier for them in certain situations to get so much out of the bottle that they do end up taking more than they might necessarily need. So paste feeding is great, you know, making the timing of the bottle last as long as like a breastfeeding session would last, maybe like, you know, aiming for 10 minutes for a bottle, you know, it will also depend on the baby. And I know you know a lot more about this, but also like switching them over to a different side, taking a burp break, um, making sure you're sticking with a nipple that's not just flowing into their mouth yeah. um, and then holding the bottle um, so that they're not just like, it's not just dripping down into their mouth, yeah. but this is kind of your specialty. So you should, you share yours. Yeah, too. yeah, definitely. So, so with bottle feeding, some of the things, so of course it depends on if they are doing breast and bottle or if it's just bottle, but I agree. I think that you need to read their cues in the same way. Look at those hunger cues. If they show those hunger cues, you prep the bottle. And what I usually tell families with is you might start out with two ounces and then read their cues. Um, and just say, does it seem like they're still hungry? Let's make more. Or if you start with a bottle that has six ounces in it, eight ounces, it, whatever the amount, just read their cues. If they yeah. are showing that they are still potentially hungry, they're still rooting, bringing their hands in, make more, like go yeah. get more. If they are showing before they finish it, that they're full and they're like, it's, you know, the done. clean plate yeah. club with the clean block, clean bottle club. Like, no, <laughs> they yeah. don't have to finish it. Um, because all it does is undermine and it doesn't respect their cues that they are giving you. Um, and so it's the same thing. And so bottles, you might be giving 10, 12, 13, 14, you know, bottles a day because mm -hmm. you read it. Also, sometimes it might only take an ounce. Sometimes it might take four or five. Yeah. Um, yep. and that's going to vary as well throughout the day, depending on what they're doing, how they're sleeping, what's their digestion like? Are they yep. you know, about to have a blowout? Maybe they're not going to want to eat as much right before that because they know internally something's going on. And so um, I you know, like to approach it in the same way. Paste bottle feeding is really, really important. Um, I do want to say here that I know there's the term used a lot about like nipple confusion. There is no nipple confusion. There might be a nipple preference. Correct. but there's not yeah. going to be confusion. Um, yep. the infant is not confused about the nipple. What they might prefer though, is if the bottle is tilted up and just free flowing in their mouth, they might prefer that because it's a lot mm -hmm. easier. Um, but we want to make sure that we're promoting it in a way, especially if they're planning to do both breast and bottle that we're yep. promoting it in a way that they are still, um, going to want and seek out the breast and, um, that they are both having them work a little bit. Um, it's really important for them to, to build those skills and develop those skills. So yeah. um, that's kind of in, in terms of the bottle is really just like you said, treat it like the breast, read the cues, um, you know, make it to where the, 
the pacing is inconsistent. Sometimes they get it like a letdown. Sometimes it's down. Sometimes they're working a little, but you don't want just full tilt bottle. They're taking it down in three minutes and you move on because they might not register at all if they're hungry or not. And I find a lot of times with those is like, those are the infants that do end up eating like every 30 minutes because they were like, hold on. I wasn't actually full or they are the kiddos that end up being overfed and they vomit and have severe reflux because well, they looked like they were still hungry. So they gave them more and then they vomited, but really their body just didn't register. Um, and so having to like, think about that in both ways as well. Yeah. And I think a good point you made is like, even with a bottle fed baby, the ounces are not necessarily going to be the same. It's not going to be that they're going to get a four ounce every single time they eat. It's just like what we talked about. It's going to depend on the time of day, what they're going through, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think a good thing to point out too, with, you know, bottle fed babies is if they're solely, you know, like exclusively pumping moms, the amount may not increase as they age. It may stay the same because like we've talked about our milk composition changes. So I, I see a lot of pressure on exclusively pumping moms to be increasing to a certain amount to be meeting like the comparison of other moms who have formula fed babies because with formula you do need to be increasing the ounces um it's not changing to your baby's needs like breast milk would be so i feel like just we really don't know if they're going to need more unless we're honoring those cues and watching for those cues like that's the only way we're going to know yep yep for sure and i think even going off of that if you have a parent who is exclusively um, pumping, then knowing too, that like sometimes doing some non-nutritive sucking at the breast after you've pumped with your infant can really be beneficial as well, because it provides the feedback from the infant saliva of how the milk composition does need to change. Um, or even like baby wearing, you know, skin to skin. Um, some studies are showing that even that, you know, that bonding and that connection can help influence the milk. I know that this is sounds weird, but like some moms will even, if the baby is like not into the non-nutritive sucking or suckling or anything like that, they will actually just put, um, the baby's saliva on their nipple. Um, and I don't know if we have like concrete evidence on if that will, you know, do anything, but I mean, that is what a baby's doing when they're latching onto you. And so it could be a really good way for an exclusively pumping mom to help tailor that breast milk to exactly what her baby needs. Right. Yeah. I'm breast milk is literally magical. Like it just blows my mind. (laughs) It really is. It's crazy. Um, okay. Awesome. So moving into starting solids, which I know is like definitely a big passion of yours. So when we're thinking about starting solids first, I'll kind of touch on the fact that, you know, between four and six months, you're going to start to see some of these readiness signs. And, um, this is the time where, you know, an infant might want to start mouthing teethers and mouthing a bunch of toys and putting more things in their mouth and, you know, moving in that direction. But what are some of the other signs we might start seeing through this range? Well, I think like the biggest signs, like that are not what I like to call false signs of readiness. I think there are some signs that mothers think are signs of readiness for solid foods, but it's actually just like developmentally normal to see these signs at four months. And it's not like, oh, that means my child needs food now. Um, And like you said, that's like losing a tongue thrust or, you know, having more um, wanting to put things in their mouth and stuff like that. That necessarily, that by itself is not telling me 
that the baby's ready for solids. Things I would prefer to see is I would like to see them with really good head and neck control um, and being able to sit unassisted or close to sitting up unassisted with, with, you know, a little bit of support. if the baby, I, I remember I have a picture, a video of my child at six months, no, at four months. Mm-hmm. And he is like slumped over in the high chair, like <laughs> a rag doll. And I'm sitting, like, we didn't introduce solids then. We introduced them yeah. at six months, but I put him in there because you can do things to, you know, get them ready for solids right. before like introducing Playing with the spoons, yeah. checking out the cups. And mm-hmm. yes, there's so many things you can do. But like, I just remember looking back on that picture thinking like, that's a little scary to me, you know, that we're offering, and even with baby led weaning work, some parents are starting baby led weaning at four months and the baby doesn't have that good core support to like bring food safely to their mouth and like the hand-eye coordination, all that kind of stuff. Anyways, um, looking at the bigger picture, like, are they developmentally ready? Are they interested? Um, but just not taking one of these signs and thinking just because they reached for my food on the plate, that means they are meeting the signs of reaching for everything. Right. And we want them to be reaching for everything. Um, and I think it goes back to the fact that yes, there's going to be a range for every child between four to six months, but there is no nutritional need for solids until six months. We don't want to go past that. Um, but we just need to remember that anything before six months is really just practice and exposure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think something else that, um, I definitely want to mention, cause I've seen this with, um, multiple kids is, you know, they're reaching, they, they seem to be sitting up. Okay. And so the, the caregivers start solids at four months old and their child seems to like it so much. They give them a lot of it and then they start losing weight because those solid foods are not enough. Sure. They might be filling them, but that is not what they need. They need the breast milk or the formula from a nutritional standpoint. Um, and so sometimes that happens as well, or, you know, other GI issues that occur because their gut just was not ready for this. And just so everybody knows, we are talking about adjusted age. We are not talking about, you know, if you have a premature infant or something, this is adjusted age four to six months. But yeah, so I've, I've even seen that side of it where like, it actually can be detrimental if you do start too early, even if they show that they're like, they show signs from a motor developmental standpoint that they're ready, but now they're, they're taking in so much of the, you know, pureed, whatever, veggies, like that's calorically and nutritionally not what they need. And then they start losing weight. Um, yeah, I actually did a post on this a while ago and it got like no engagement. So I was like, this was I like, this was eye opening for me though, because it was showing like how, you know, breast milk and formula are so calorically dense, mm-hmm. like per ounce. It, they just have so much in that one ounce of breast milk or that one ounce of formula. And when we're starting solids, a lot of moms are starting with, um, fruit, pu- fruit purees, like applesauce or, you know, like mashed carrots or things of that nature. And yes, they're going to be filling because your baby has never had solid food before. So everything's going to kind of slow down a little bit, but an ounce of breast milk is not comparable to an ounce of applesauce at all. It has nothing. Yeah. So when, you know, I hear moms coming to me and saying that, you know, they were recommended to start on solid foods for weight gain. I'm like, no, we need to be giving them more breast milk, more formula So we don't do the opposite, like you're saying. Yes, exactly. And I think too, like 
the way these foods are packaged, do you think like if your child's not eating the entire carton of whatever puree that like, that's not good, but it is, it's okay. Because that means they are filling up on the breast milk or the formula that they should be and not that. Um, because if they start doing that and then they're significantly cutting down on the milk that they're intaking, that's a concern as well. When we're thinking about this, like six to 12 month range, we need to be really careful about that. Um, because it is just complimentary. And I think, you know, starting solids is important. There's many things we can do to, you know, like establish this healthy eating pattern and practice this response of feeding, but it is complimentary. It is complementing the breast milk and the formula. And we don't, we need to make sure that we're not taking away from that. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So once we get to the point of, okay, we're ready to start solids. Um, and we're thinking about starting solids at six months and, you know, I can kind of talk about, you know, there, there's multiple ways to start solids. You can start with spoon feedings. You can do baby lead weaning. You can do a more of a bliss method of, you know, using both. Um, because I think all foods have a place and, and you agree with that. You know, we agree that like all foods have a place, all of them, you know, um, help with skill development. And that's really important. But when we're thinking nutritionally, what are, um, you know, are there any things we need to think about at that point? Cause at until six months, really breast milk or formula has been providing everything that the child needs. So what are we thinking about when we get to that six to 12 month range? Yeah. So with my clients, I really want us to be focusing on the high iron foods because of that is what we know. Um, breast milk is most likely deficient in, mm-hmm. um, at the six month mark. And that is because we, they accumulate their iron stores in utero Um, and they last about six months and that's when we need to start introducing, um, the high iron foods to help meet those needs. I know that there's no general guidelines currently for everyone to be on an iron supplement, but I know some pediatricians are going that route where they're, you know, recommending iron to every breastfed baby, which I don't really know if I'm on board with that yet, because there is, you know, there are cons to too much iron as well. And, um, iron found naturally in food sources is much more absorbable and digested easier versus like the supplements can cause a lot of GI issues with little ones. Um, so I was going to say, I, um, you know, I deal with bouts of anemia and I know sometimes when I have to be put on my iron supplements, like if I'm not careful what I'm taking it with, I do not feel good. (laughs) No, it can really impact GI tract, how the baby feels, everything. So if we can avoid supplements and optimize the iron at six months, that's what I recommend. And I feel like that's more natural and easier for the baby as well. And, you know, we have a lot of products on the market now that are catering to that, which I am glad, you know, that all the baby foods, not just fruits and veggies now that we are having, you know, other companies come out with really like um, um, really high iron uh, baby foods. And I do want to say like, you know, they used to recommend like iron cereal as one of the first foods. And that's the same thing as kind of the iron supplement. It is, if it, if given too much, it can still, you know, have those negative um, GI issues. And it also just isn't absorbed as well as giving your child like chicken liver pate or something like that, which I know sounds, you know, a lot of people are like, Ooh, that's disgusting. But I mean, if we're talking about optimizing nutrition from the start, we're giving our kids, um, foods that are super nutrient dense in small amounts and chicken liver is one of those things. Yep. Yep. No, I completely makes sense. And that's where like, um, you know, in that range too, something I love that you always share is like, um, food before one 
is more than fun. Um, there is a reason for it and not just from that nutritional standpoint, but also, you know, I can speak from the skill developmental standpoint. And so when we talk about these signs of readiness, if you get to six months and some of these signs that you're just like, I'm just not sure if my child from a developmental standpoint is ready, that should really signal to you that you need a referral because there is a small window. That's really important to not only introduce from a nutritional standpoint and from a skill building standpoint, but also from an allergy standpoint. And we know that, you know, when you are introducing allergens, you need to do it early. So as soon as you're starting solids and frequently. And so if you have a child that at six months, a caregiver is just not sure if they're ready and they're like, oh, I'm going to wait till seven months. And then it becomes, oh, I'll just wait till eight months. You've missed a very, very critical window for multiple levels of development. Yeah. And, and for texture exposure, like what kind of what you're talking about for texture exposure and for flavor exposure, you know, like this, like six to nine months is what I see the most often is when the children are most receptive to trying a bunch of different things. And even though nine months is still young and we're still going to try to offer as many things, I do start to see even at nine months, if they're only being offered the same thing, they're going to get used to that and they're going to prefer it. And that's what we want is we want to make sure that if they're preferring things, we have a wide variety, um, that they're not just stuck on like Cheerios and puffs, you know, that we're offering them different textures, different flavors. And yeah, you're so right. Um, I think the allergen thing, me and you have talked about this on Instagram live before. I think there's like this push and pull on like, we, we, we know that we need to start allergens early. We know that the data shows that, um, we don't, the data doesn't show like exactly the exact month that's exactly before 12 like before before 12 months is key um but we have this really big push for we have to start at four months and we don't have literature that shows that so that's why me and Bree always say it should be the some of the first foods you're offering but you don't need to stress about offering it at four months versus six months because there's no data that shows four months is better than six months. Yep, exactly. And really the only the only time that type of recommendation should oh, be high risk. Yes, yes. A high risk. And yes. high risk though, there is a and it's only for peanut. There is a family history of peanut allergy and child already has a diagnosed egg allergy. You have to have both to be considered the high risk. And then in that situation, you should be working closely with your physician on, on all of that. Um, And I'd be doing like a peanut powder or an egg powder or something like that. I don't, I don't, Mm -hmm. yeah, we wouldn't be like giving them like an omelet. Um, we would have ways to incorporate it into breast milk or formula, but yeah, that's really key. Like all the studies right now are conclusive on the peanut and the eggs. The other ones we're assuming, we're assuming that all the allergens work the same and early introduction is better, um, which I'm fine with, but we really are just saying that conclusively peanut and eggs are the ones that are strongest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, it's not that it has to be before six months. It's just when six months hits, we need to be cognizant of something we can at least try to prevent. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So moving past the kind of six to 12 month range where we're just exploring, 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 but also considering that that's a critical window. Um, when we get to 12 months, what are some of the changes that occur during this in terms of nutrition and what maybe a child is, um, going to be needing? Yeah. So this is kind of like lately been one of my like favorite client calls. Cause I, I do this whole transitioning cause moms really want to know, like, what does it look like after 12 months? Like, what do I need to be focusing on? And 
One of the big things that I like is iron needs go down a lot. Um, so it goes from 11 milligrams iron a day when they're infants, um, the seven to 12 months to seven milligrams. So we still want to focus on those iron, high iron foods and offer them, but we don't have to be as stressed with it. Mm -hmm. um, I think more so the focus turns to calcium and vitamin D because we're, if we're not breastfeeding any longer, um, if we're not providing formula, we're finding a different way to meet those nutrients. Um, B12 is important. There's a lot of, you know, we still want a lot of healthy fats, um, but I think vitamin D and calcium are some of the biggest ones that I come across that are maybe not being met um, and are really important for like bone health and growth because we only have one chance to build healthy bones and that this is the age range for it. You know, we have to make sure we're giving them calcium and vitamin D. So if we're a dairy allergy baby, we need to make sure that we're finding plant-based sources um, that are fortified. It's, it's pretty hard to meet these needs, calcium and vitamin D without fortified foods. Um, so just, you know, trying to find, you know, fitting whatever the family's preference and cultural desires are, but making sure that those are two of the big ones that I focus on. Yeah, definitely. I think this is, you know, also the, the time when children just become like, they want a little more control over what's yeah. going on and you might see them start to have more preferences. And sure. um, this is kind of where a lot of times I find that this is a zone where a lot of referrals do happen because yeah. there's a lot of changes. There is a push for a decrease in milk intake. There's a push for transitioning to whole milk. Now we're not going to be on formula anymore. There's a push to, you know, if, um, a caregiver decides to start weaning their breastfeeding, um, you know, like there's a big push for a lot of changes at once. And then developmentally we're like, oh yeah. And start walking and start doing this. And like, yeah. there's so many things going on with this child where, um, food becomes just like, uh, a small part of their day development yeah. about what's yeah. going on. Um, and so I think this is an area that unfortunately there's a lot of information on starting solids, but like you said, this is kind of that, this is this area where it's like a shadow over like, oh, and when they hit 12 months, they should be eating what you're eating and you're doing milk and okay, bye. And it's like, hold on. <laughs> That's a huge yeah. uh, And I think it's because it's so individualized because it really just depends on the, the family dynamic. Like what is what they normally eat and what is their normal eating situation, you know? And I feel like there needs to be more emphasis on like getting the child involved in meals. So whether that's like help letting them choose things at the grocery store, letting them prep food, um, but like getting them involved in like food and nutrition and like the whole mealtime environment is just really, really important. Like when we give them a little bit of independence and choice over the feeding environment, um, it really can change like their receptiveness to try new foods, which I know you work with patients like this all the time, but like, it's not going to be like when they were six months, we can't just hand them anything and then be willing to try it. You know, if they've never had pumpkin before and then we give it to them, and we're like, why are you not eating it? Well, when we have been given a new food that we've never eaten before, are we just going to dive right in or are we going to evaluate it? We might want to touch it. We want, might want to feel it or smell it, you know, and like just really encouraging like the natural progression of like getting to know food and becoming more receptive to it. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. And like you said, it's not just them exploring anymore. It's getting them involved at a higher level and starting yeah, for sure. to have them play a role in what they're eating and the mealtime experience. And, but again, also still keeping it positive and keeping yes. it something that is low pressure. And that's where that responsive feeding comes into play. And so I think this is also kind of the realm where, you know, we need to be careful of in terms of like, I think this is, sorry, getting my brain around my thought. I feel like this is also the time that I get a lot of questions from parents on what's a serving size. Oh yeah. How much should they eat? Because now there is a push to do more solids. And so I guess just kind of speak to that a little bit in terms of like, how can we make sure we are still again, keeping consistent with being responsive and following the child's lead in this? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is we're offering consistent meal times. They know when they're going to get food throughout the day. They have a routine. Um, I think that's really important and not saying that we can't give them something else to eat if they're hungry outside of those windows, but that we're giving them something that's healthy and nutrient dense um, at those times. We're not relying on like packaged foods because then that we can get in this whole struggle of them only wanting to eat snacks instead of meals. But I think having a routine, having a good, you know, Um, They know where they're going to eat. They know that this is their eating space. It's their safe environment. And then, you know, with the portion sizes, well, there isn't a perfect portion size. I'm doing a post on this soon too, but like, Mm -hmm. I think I put like the perfect portion size is the the portion your child eats. Um, Because I mean, there, we can, yeah, there's recommendations and guidelines on the amount of like certain food groups they should eat a day, but it's just so highly variable and it's such a big range. Um, we really have to just be, you know, offering all the food groups consistently rotating different foods, making sure we're offering a variety. And we start with a small portion. If they seem like they're still hungry, then we offer more. That's exactly um, what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Don't overload the plate initially, because not only does it make you feel like, I don't know, did they eat enough? Yeah. It also can overwhelm the child and like, you know, I didn't eat enough mom or dad or grandma or whoever is going to be disappointed in me, Yep. but also some kids will just totally shut down to that and not eat anything because yep. get worked up. And so, yeah, I love it. It's like, it's not, here's all your servings. You have to eat it all because like, I, I don't want someone to serve my plate. I know much how, how much I want at this moment. Um, and so starting small, I love that because it's like, you can always ask for more. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's that no pressure. Like you got to finish your plate to leave the table. Like, yeah, I think it's like, I will never know how hungry or how full you are. I do not have the ability to know that. I don't, I cannot read your hunger cues. Um, and you can never know how much I need. And so for like I, something I do with my son, who's two and a half is I will let him not all the time, but sometimes when he's really interested, I'll let him pick his portions. So he'll get a spoon out and I'll let him spoon how much he thinks he needs. Yeah. And a lot of times he thinks it's so fun spooning the foods that he'll spoon a ton he on just there. Does a big you one. Know? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it's really cool to see, like, he'll get like two pieces of chicken and he'll be like enough. And I'm like, okay. You know what I mean? Like maybe you had a ton of protein for breakfast. And so you don't need a lot of protein for lunch. And so it's just really cool. Like kind of just giving them that, you know, leeway to try to like figure out what they need for their own body. But yeah, definitely starting small. Um, if you're concerned about them, not getting enough nutrition, getting enough nutrition, if they're not gaining well, if they're falling off their growth curve, we seek out a specialist, a referral. Yep. Yep. No, I think that's great. And then 
kind of going into the last age range, and this is a big age range, and I really just want to hit on it briefly, but it's that like two to seven-year-old level. And this is where developmentally it is natural for neophobia to occur. Neophobia is the fear of new foods if you're not familiar with it. And this is a normal stage of development. This is a normal stage where kids are like, oh, that's new. I don't know about that. And that's where this is also the stage where a child may be a little picky, but if we are not careful in what we are recommending, it could enable it further and it could make it stay. And then that's yeah. when we are now developing a pediatric feeding disorder because what was yeah. just a natural stage of a little bit of a neophobia, now it's continued and our child now eats four foods. Um, not to say that it's blamed on any one thing or singular thing right. that was done. However, there are things that we can do during this stage to try to prevent it from exacerbating. So when we think about those sorts of things, you have a child who is, you know, quote unquote picky. Um, and so they're, you know, starting to just ew to everything. And so what are some of the things that you think about in terms of continuing to be responsive and um, the division of responsibility? Yeah, I think, I mean, really all we can do is let's go back to the fact that children will not intentionally starve themselves. Um, they're not that like, not, not saying they're not that smart, but like they will not starve themselves on purpose. If they're not eating a meal, there's probably something in the way mm -hmm. of them eating that meal. It's a fear of the new food. Um, maybe they don't have that big of an appetite. Maybe there's something sensory that's bothering them. You know, there can be all these factors. Are they not feeling great? So there's normally a reason behind the food, the non-acceptance. Yep. And so kind of trying to work with the child to help figure that out while just having a really positive mm -hmm. presence during mealtime. Like it should never feel like we, the child sat down at the meal table and we are expecting something out of them. Like, I think that's the worst thing is when all eyes are on the children um, and we're like, really like, do you want some of this? Do you want some of this? How about one of these bites? You know what I mean? Like, I think some um, of the, when we take the focus off of the child, when we just try to have like a good family um, dynamic, you know, where we're talking, where we, as the parents are modeling what good behavior at the table looks like, how to chew and swallow all these new foods, you know, like role modeling the whole experience versus like just sitting there staring at the child and being so stressed that they literally feel your stress and yeah. shut down. Yeah. Cause the increase in pressure actually decreases them wanting yeah. to eat it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it really does not does not help with the manner. And I love how you said, like, there is always going to be a reason that they're not eating it. And by implementing a lot of these more responsive strategies and, you know, thinking about the division or responsibility of, you know, the caregiver is deciding when and what is offered and the child is deciding if and how much they eat of everything. If you are implementing those things and your child is still not wanting to eat and still not interested in anything, there might be something else going on. There might be an underlying etiology that you need to see a specialist for. And that's so important to remember is like, when we are talking about a lot of these strategies, this is, you know, after those things have been resolved, or if they haven't been resolved, this is what we recommend implementing. And then you might figure out, Hey, we need to investigate this further. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a really important thing to note too, is we do need to decrease the pressure and, you know, just move forward. But if the child does have something sensory going on, or they have a GI issue that we just don't know about yet, yeah. 
um, an allergy or intolerance to something that we just haven't identified and you're removing the pressure and it's positive and it's fun and they still are not wanting to eat and they're losing weight or they're showing other signs of malnutrition, then that's, you know, we need to be seeking additional help from there. And, and that's when, you know, we might be referring to a GI or an ENT or, yeah. an or somebody else that can really support that from, um, their perspective. Yeah. I think that's, that's like the important thing that I try to reiterate is like, this is like a very critical period of development. And so like, if you are really concerned about something and you feel like it's not right, like you are the parent and you know your child the best. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could come to me and I could think that everything looked pretty good, you know, like nutritionally, they're eating pretty good. But if you think that there's something wrong, I feel like you should always trust your gut instinct to seek out, you know, yep. added support because I do not know your child like you know them. And same for you, you know what I mean? Like we can, you know, check off all the, this looks normal, this looks normal, but it is really like your gut that's going to kind of guide the way if something's going wrong. Definitely. And I think that's something with pediatric feeding disorders. One of the components is psychosocial. And if mealtimes are stressful for whatever reason, that in and of itself can impact mealtimes and make the experience like traumatic and detrimental to the child and the caregivers. And that alone is enough to seek support. Um, So is there any like like stressful meals like that's like my goal in life is every person that I work with I want mealtimes to be joyful like I do not I want them to be a fun part of your day something you look forward to and if you're constantly walking into mealtime like dreading it there's a problem yep yep absolutely no for sure and I you know we both agree that like the earlier you seek help the better like better yeah intervention shows us and it's better to say I'm a little concerned and seek help than be like wow this is really really bad um go ahead and seek the support early so for sure I totally agree awesome is there anything else you can think to add to um what we've covered I think just like where we started from the from the very beginning of this is, you know, if you are like a new parent or something, being prepared and educated on like what normal behaviors are for children is really important to like set the stage for your expectations. Like if you have like a really good friend who's been through this before, or you have a healthcare professional, you really trust, like, you know, taking classes before your child's born on breastfeeding and knowing what to expect and what's normal, I think is super important and can really set you up for a much easier breastfeeding journey. If you kind of know like what normal sleeping patterns are, what normal eating patterns are, things of that nature. And then, you know, with the starting solids phase, there's just not a lot of education. Well, in certain sectors, I feel like there's a lot of education, but you kind of have to find that little niche. And so I think there's a lot of moms. I pulled my Instagram like a little while ago and there was like 500 moms who said that they felt like they did, they didn't get any nutrition education when starting solids. And I mean, that's probably our healthcare blame. We don't have that really, you know, available. Well, it's very much just like you go to your six month appointment and they're like, okay, you can start. Yeah. And so I feel like it's just really important to like reiterate the fact that that, that is, it is super important. Like you said, like that six, 12 months age range, we can do so much good in that age range. If we have the support and the education we need, which is generally lacking. So I just, encourage mothers, you know, other healthcare professionals, if it's not something that you're really, you know, up to date on, like, 
reaching out and getting support for that. Yeah, no, I definitely agree because I think this is something, especially if you're working with like the infant to 12 month population yeah. at all, you really should be well-versed in this because it's, it's really, really important. And like you said, it can be a critical period for a lot of positive development. It can also be a critical period yeah. that doesn't allow for development. And so yeah. it's really important to make sure that the right things are being done, um, at that time. So, yeah. Awesome. I appreciate you so much. You are just, I love our conversations. I do too. <laughs> They're always so great. And like, I feel like I could talk for another hour on this topic. So <laughs> no, I was like, I feel like I always want to message you on Instagram and be like, can we do another IG live? Cause I feel like we, we align so well on like yeah. just our, our process and being research-based and like kind of not giving into the opinions and the biases of other people. Like we really stand firm on that research. No, so this is what it said. I, it wasn't me. I didn't yeah. say it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I really appreciate you too. Oh, awesome. So um, where can anyone find you, um, if they want to yeah. learn more from the nutrition side? Yeah. So on Instagram, that's where I'm most active. Um, I'm at the baby dietitian. So it's the period baby dot dietitian. Um, and then that's the same name I have on TikTok. So that's where I'm probably the most active. Um, my website is dietitianforbaby.com. So, but the easiest way to get a hold of me is probably just to instant message me. And that's where I mostly I'm sitting. Awesome. So. awesome. Hopefully you don't get uh, bombarded with a bunch of messages, but, uh, <laughs> um, well, if it's individualized, I'm going to refer you to a service. Yep. Yep. For sure. For sure. But well, thank you so much, Cindy. I appreciate you. And, uh, we'll definitely have to do this again. Thanks for tuning in on today's episode. We hope you'll continue to follow us along as well as reach out and follow us on Instagram at the feeding pod. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll take a second to leave a review. If you want to get Ash's CEUs for listening, plus more courses and resources, visit pediatricslplibrary.com. Wherever you are, whoever you are, we hope you have a great day.